On the Empire Podcast this week, what's that, Lassie? The church roof has been broken. Well, thankfully, we've got a Christian Slater in town. Yes, he's here to talk about his new TV show, Mr. Robot, plus all the usual news and nonsense on the movie podcast that just put a fiver on someone to win this year's Apprentice. You know who it is? It's the old bearded guy who keeps pointing his finger at everyone. I've got a feeling about him. A really good feeling. Hello, Paul. I'm Chris Hewitt. Welcome to the Empire Podcast, sponsored by O2's Go Think Big, which brings you valuable career advice, amazing insider contacts, and exclusive tips to set you up for your dream career. Be sure to check out gothinkbig.co.uk for online tools, features, and one-of-a-kind work experience opportunities, including with Empire. Dum, 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 dum. Right now, Go Think Big are giving any young budding film director the chance to win a starter kit worth £5,000, including a Canon EOS 5D Mark III camera, which is very, very nice, and an Apple MacBook, which is also very, very nice, complete with editing software, which is also very, very nice. Again, to find out more, head over to gothinkbig.co.uk. Okay. As usual, I'm joined by two colleagues of such lethal cunning who also, as chance would have it, applied for this year's Apprentice. And I have, <laughs> weirdly, their application forms right in front of me. See if you can guess who's who. I'm a real dragon in the boardroom, says this contestant. When it comes to business, I do whatever it takes to win, Chester. Sam and Dean with no shirts on. That last bit didn't even make any sense, Helen O'Hara. What's going on? <gasps> How did you know? This is, of course, <laughs> a complete lie, Chris. As you know, I applied for Dragon's Den. Oh, I yes. mean, come on. It's obvious, isn't it's it? It's obvious. Well, I'm out. Let's see if you can guess who the next person is. I'm quoting directly from their application form. As a massive West Wing fan, my business strategy is to sit around in my pants all day re-watching my West Wing box set. When it wears out, I intend to open a business long enough to make enough money so I can buy a new West Wing box set and maybe some new pants. It's James Dyer. Literally, the only time you're... You're only ever going to introduce me as something to do with the West Wing, aren't you? That's, well, you need to be more interesting. This is why Phil does the podcast, because he's just more fun to make fun of. No, you should see Phil's face now. <laughs> when I do, <laughs> when I introduce him as the art house guru, it's like a piece of him dies inside each time. Well, we should do it now, because Phil, unfortunately, can't do the podcast this week because he's in Japan, because his Kurosawa box set marathon has gone method. He's reenacting every single one of Akira's films in Japan, <laughs> starting with Hidden Fortress. So that's good. Has anyone ever actually called Akira Kurosawa Akira before? I'd... We are on first name terms. <laughs> My Xbox gamer tag is Yojimbo. So it is Yojimbo. And when Sam used to work here, his Xbox gamer tag was Sam Juro. There you go. There you go. It's Hot beautiful. beautiful. Pretty, pretty amazing. All right, we don't have a lot of time. We've got a lot of ranty to do, James. <laughs> you, you and I about <laughs> something in particular. Uh, so let's get on with this nonsense. Here is a question. It's been sent in via Twitter by at Ewan Franklin, who says, In the wake of that incredible scene in Sicario, what are the best movie scenes set at the dinner table? Oh. Mm, this is kind of like a dinner table right now. I'm underfed this morning, so this is actually making me hungry. I'm, I'm so currently sorry. eating a cinnamon bun that was bought for me today by Helen because someone, I'm not going to name any names, was half an hour late for the recording. So we had lots of time to kill. And Helen bought me something because Helen was here <laughs> and I was here. <laughs> See if you can use fire process of elimination. <laughs> Who wasn't here? But anyway, thanks, Helen. This is really tasty. I should be late every time. There's an alarming amount of pastry in the pod booth. <laughs> and there's yum-yums. There's also weird neon pink mood lighting, which is strange. But very atmospheric. Back to the question for a second. Oh, yeah. This is an interesting one because a lot of directors talk about how hard it is to do a dinner table scene. I remember, for some reason, Joe Wright talking about Pride and Prejudice and his first day of shooting basically on his by that point by far his biggest project to date was Judy Dench and a dinner table scene so he was absolutely I think it's fair to say terrified uh, we'll come back to him when we get to Pan later and yet despite the fact that they're difficult to do they mm. keep cropping up because they're a great way to get literally everybody round a table absolutely well so much coverage isn't it mm. and everyone's doing stuff and so it's hard to keep track of continuity and it's hard to keep track of angles and where everyone's looking so that's why it's tricky Definitely. One of my favourites has got to be Beauty and the Beast, where they, you know, dispense with the numerous people around the table and just have the flatware come to life, <laughs> which is far easier and quicker. The Be Our Guest song is one of the great moments, well, I think, in that, in that film. I, have, I was about to say sung that many times. I've never sung that song, but I've listened to it many times. It depends what you define by dinner, doesn't it, really? Reservoir Dog starts with a great scene. Guys around the table. Yep. Is it a dinner table? No. It's, it's a diner table. It's a diner table. Isn't it breakfast? And then technically they've just had breakfast. Mm. I might disqualify that from the, from the running. If we're having restaurants, then you've got to have Salazzo McCluskey scene from Godfather. This is true. And you've got to have heat. But us you two do. guys having coffee. Yes, I'm not eating any. I so, mean, maybe they did after the scene ends. Maybe we just didn't see that bit. Yeah, that we possible? never see what happens. I've always wondered what happens in the aftermath of that scene. <laughs> and Macaulay and Hannah, like, do they do that really embarrassing thing where they say goodbye and then end up going the same direction? <laughs> it's like, oh, you again. Oh, hello. And then they walk to each other's cars and it just gets a little bit annoying. Well, this is me. <laughs> Do you want to come in? <laughs> no. Okay. I'm sure. 
<laughs> just just a coffee. It's a very different take on heat. Bringing Chris. the conversation back to monkey brains. <laughs> Temple of Doom. I'm going to throw out there. I think you may have won. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, think, I think you probably have. I think you just throw down one. That's pretty good. You can drop the bat and run away like that guy did in baseball last night. Indeed. Topical references. What happens in the for people who haven't seen Temple of Doom, James? They eat lots and lots of very appetising things, many of which look like they've been served in the staff cafeteria, including monkey brains and eyeballs and something involving a goat skull. And snake surprise. Snake Don't surprise. forget snake surprise What's for What's a surprise? <laughs> More snakes! <laughs> Just your average Angus Steakhouse, really, isn't it? Oh. It's Helen, um, as our lawyer. <laughs> no, no. I've as... looked in the glass window, Helen. I've looked in there, and frankly, that's what I saw. I ate there once. You ate at an Angus Steak? Yeah, when I first arrived in London. This is what everyone does when they get off the it boat. It was my birthday, it? and I only had a few friends, and we all went to Angus Steakhouse because I went, damn it, I want a steak on my birthday. And the experience was so bad, so awful, that A, I've never been there since, and B, I was so angry and depressed on my birthday that I went out and immediately spent money I did not have on a PlayStation 2. In fairness, Chris, you would have done that after a good meal as well. I don't know if I would, Helen. Basically, I was so angry and we were walking around Oxford Street. It was like quite late at night and game was open, which was a bit of a sign. And I went, you know what? Screw it. I'm going to do this because I've been toying with it for ages. Went in, bought it, enjoyed it. Next week, price came down by 100 quid. Let that be a lesson to you, kids. Do not go to an Angus Steakhouse. Other steakhouses are available. That is one of the great anecdotes. And we should also right, point out that Angus Steakhouse, it might be really, really nice. It could have come a long way since then. It could have come a long way. Aberdeen Steakhouse, for example. Indeed. Let's roll up a few more. The whole of The Last Supper. Chuck that out there. <laughs> the entire film. Meet the parents. Yes. You can milk anything. With nipples. <laughs> Can you milk? Never mind. I have nipples, Greg. Can you milk me? <laughs> I feel like in Phil's absence, somebody should say Babette's Feast. <laughs> all those kind of films. Yes. So let's just assume that he was yes. here and said yeah. all of those. Yeah. Shall mm -hmm. we? I should also mention pretty much every single Ben Wheatley film. There is an excruciating scene set around a dinner table. Not so much Field in England and High Rise. There's one extent. in High Rise. There is one in High yeah, Rise. Yeah, sort of. Kind of. And my favourite of his, he uses dinner tables as a way to expose all the seething hatred underneath <laughs> that people store underneath the surface. My favourite one of those is towards the end of Side Series where it's around one of those little toy toy dining tables, which is really, really fun. I like that one a lot. Any others? American Beauty's Past the Fucking Asparagus. That's a pretty good one. Banana Boat Song of Beetlejuice is a personal favourite. Deo. Mm -hmm. Deo. Do we want to go a bit left field? Hannibal, Rayleigh Otter's brains? Oh, you know, no. I no. just hate that film too much to talk about it. I'm going to close with Taken, because it's always good when you shoot someone's wife at a dinner table. <laughs> Ooh. Note to is self. Is it? <laughs> I'm not sure it is. When Liam Neeson does it, it's okay. When Liam Neeson does it, it's expected. Yeah. Now, if I invited Liam Neeson around my house and he didn't shoot my wife in the arm, I'd be disappointed. I'd have to ask him to leave. And rightly so. I mean, I feel like asking him to leave should probably come up in either scenario then. <laughs> but okay, I think we've answered that question and then some. Back to the Future as well has a cracking scene sent around the dinner table, which packs in a lot of scene-setting exposition which comes to play later on. So that's a good one True. as well. And again, as always, we're not trying to be exhaustive here or comprehensive. There are stuff we're missing, obviously. Do send them in via Twitter. For example, last week, we missed loads of musical sequences in non-musical films. People were pointing out Shaun of the Dead and all sorts of stuff this week. You're Absolutely right, but thank you for sending them in. And we'll try and read out the best on next week's podcast. They also last <clears> week <throat> solved the Tom Hardy duck dilemma. Uh, would you rather fight 50 duck-sized Tom Hardys or one Tom Hardy-sized duck? Mm -hmm. The answer is, of course, that people would rather fight one duck-faced Tom Hardy mm -hmm. and then link to one of his pictures from his old MySpace profile. Oh, mm -hmm. God. So that squared We're the... no closer, though, to solving the question of which would be tastier. But perhaps <laughs> another time. Crispy fried Tom Hardy. Absolutely. Mm, interesting. Yeah, a bit of cucumber, a bit of hoisin sauce. Shredded in a half pancake. Mm. This has become a very Tom different Hardy. dinner. It's a culinary podcast this week. <laughs> okay, that's that for that question. If you want to have your question read out in the Empire podcast and treat it with respect and reverence, do send them in via Twitter at Empire Magazine is our Twitter handle. Uh, use the hashtag Empire Podcast or chances are we won't see it, but other Empire Podcasts will probably see it instead. And they'll read it out in their show and there'll be all sorts of comedic confusion. You can Facebook us, we're Empire Magazine, and you can email us podcast at empireonline.com. We had a couple of good email questions in recently, so I may give those a whirl next week. It's time for some movie news, otherwise known as I get angry and rant at things. Shall we start with the one that's going to get you angriest and then try and soothe no, the, we, the uh, raging beast? I don't know. Do you want to go the other way around? Should we start with the happy stuff and let's then... ramp up. All right. Happy stuff. A rumour story. Let's sound the rumour klaxon <laughs> quite a lot. There is a rumour that Hulk, Mark Ruffalo's Hulk, will appear in Thor God. Ragnarok. What? Oh, this oh sorry. This is meant... happy stuff. This is okay, happy sorry. stuff. Happy, happy... Marvel, Chris. Hang on, the I just have to take my objectivity and... 
<laughs> Set it to one side, get my fanboy hat on. Yes, I'm on board with this. Spoiler here for anyone who hasn't seen Avengers Age of Ultron, although I don't understand why you're listening to this podcast if not. But we, of course, last saw the Hulk disappearing off in a Quinjet. There was some suggestion he may have leapt out somewhere in the South Indian Ocean or Southern Pacific. But what if he didn't? What if he went into space and found himself fighting alongside Thor as he tries to stave off the Asgardian apocalypse and probably more trouble, we're assuming, from Loki and probably something else. There's another rumour that there's going to be an other planet involved, um, um, which could tie into the whole sort of <clears throat> Planet Hulk storyline. Again, we're getting yeah. into wild speculation with Wild that. speculation. I think the thing with the Planet Hulk, I think the internet, the fanboy community, has been trying desperately to make Marvel do Planet Hulk. <laughs> I'm not a fan of the Planet Hulk storyline. I'd be quite happy if they just did not touch I it. Quite Don't en- go I near quite it. enjoyed bits of it. I have to say, I was just rereading it recently. Well, one of the problems with Planet Hulk is that it removes Banner from the equation. It and does. one of the joys of the Marvel Cinematic Universe iteration of Bruce Banner is True. Mark Ruffalo. And you want Ruffalo on screen almost as much. In fact, I want it as much as you want the big green guy. I'd be quite happy if they avoided Planet Hulk. We should stick a big flag. We've already mentioned the yeah. rumor collection, but I would take this with a big pinch of salt yeah. at the moment. I think like a whole salt cellar would probably be more it's, appropriate. It's worth pointing out also, Planet Hulk is really only interesting because it's a preface to World War Hulk, which is a hell of a lot more interesting. And also yeah. a great title. Like yeah. That's one of the great comic book titles. I want something called World War Hulk. I don't even care what's yeah. in it. Like They could just then have him sit around and read a newspaper and I'd still be happy. My favourite internet meme from that era was when Civil War was going on in the comics and everyone's going, who's going to win? It's going to be Iron Man, it's going to be Captain America. And there was a gif going around on the forum just said, it doesn't matter, you're all fucked when the Hulk gets back. <laughs> <laughs> and that summed it up for me. I actually really like World War Hulk because I'm a dyed-in-the-wool Hulk fan, as I think regular listeners of the podcast will know very much. When it comes to top trumps, I like the idea that you know he is the strongest one there is. Blah, blah, blah. That's what I like about World War Hulk. It really uncorks the Hulk's potential and he really just does visit an extraordinary amount of pain on heavy hitters that the Earth has to offer. Yeah, We should just, to mm. kind of round up the Ragnarok stories this week, obviously Taika Waititi is down to direct, Yeah, which is fascinating and I think very good choice. Even though he's known for comedy though, I've heard rumours it's going to be quite dark. So who knows? I don't know. Maybe you need a comic director in that case to kind of lighten things up if your plot line's quite dark. I don't know. The other interesting rumour involves the lovely Rebecca Ferguson of Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. The rumour has it that she might be up for Valkyrie. As in, not the Tom Cruise film, but the Marvel character. (laughs) They're remaking Tom Cruise films with people who've (laughs) been in Tom Cruise films. That's right. Remind me who Valkyrie is as a character. She's another Asgardian superheroine. She was a member of the Defenders for a while as well. You know, proper sort of, sort of, imagine like a good Red Sonja. Yeah. Skimpy armour, that kind of. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Well, everybody knows if you cover your stomach with your armour, it takes away your strength. It's like cutting Samson's hair. Why would you do that? It's crazy. Tangentially related to the Hulk Ruffalo thing. Did anyone see the New York Comic Con pictures of Jared Leto and Mark Ruffalo who turned up cosplaying and walked among the masses? Jared Leto, who dressed as some kind of baboon, posing with someone in full makeup as his Joker. Quite cool. Yeah, that tw- was awesome, actually. He yeah. tweeted he had no idea, <laughs> which is a lot of fun. I'm convinced we've probably talked to some people at Comic-Con, some famous people. I certainly went around the floor a couple of years that I've been there taking pictures of all <laughs> in, the best costumes. Costume. <laughs> I wasn't in costume. All the people I was taking pictures of were. And uh, although I do now have a Wonder Woman costume, so I could do next year, I got some pictures of great people. <laughs> and I wonder now, were they all famous or just like half of them? Well, Cranston did it as Heisenberg, didn't he? And John Boyega did it as a clone trooper at Celebration. Yeah. <laughs> next year at Comic-Con, I'll go as you, you go as me. Helen go as Phil Phil will go as Helen actually no I'll go as Helen sounds more fun yeah let's do that we'll just cosplay as people who (laughs) no one would ever want to cosplay as fingers crossed that they use Hulk a bit more in the MCU Thor can always go back to Earth and get him and bring him back again I don't think that he went into space at the end of Avengers 2 I'm excited to see it either way now can we get angry about something you ready let's get a little bit angry then Robert Rodriguez is on to direct Battle Angel Alita James Cameron has been Mm -hmm. talking about this film for approximately 75 years. <laughs> he is now, however, a little bit tied up with the small matter of three Avatar sequels and has decided that he's not willing to wait another 75 years to make it and therefore is apparently handing the directorial reins to Robert Rodriguez, who is currently in negotiations. This is not yet fixed. How do we feel? I'm disappointed, but not because I have a sort of dying love for Battle Angel. In fact, I'm not wildly familiar with it. I've read up on it when Cameron was doing it. It's more that it's a shame to me that Cameron's not doing something else. 
I think this kind of marks to me his commitment to only do vegan projects from now on and to make films about carob bars. You wouldn't see um, him in an Angus Steakhouse? Well, no, you wouldn't. And I think that's a bit sad. And much as I enjoyed Avatar, I don't really want to see another eight of them. I think it's a shame <laughs> in that regard. As for Rodriguez taking it on, I mean, you know, go nuts. I feel like it's been a little while since he knocked it out of the park for me, I'll be honest. Yeah, Dust Till Dawn, I think, was pretty much it, wasn't it? So I think we've said this in the podcast before, that he's a really frustrating director, Robert Rodriguez, because he's got loads of talent. I'm not sure that he's utilised it to the best of his ability. Maybe taking on someone else's project. Again, like James, this is a property I know very little about. It'd be exciting, I guess, the idea of James Cameron doing it. Robert Rodriguez, for all his talent, seems to be several steps down on the ladder. But it'll be good maybe to get him away from some of the stuff he's been doing recently. Yeah. And maybe fulfil the potential that I think remains sadly unfulfilled. I'll be interested to see what he does with a female lead. Certainly in his last few years, partly because he's been dabbling with a grindhouse noiry feel. His female characters have not been the most inspirational, I think it's fair to say. Santanico Pandemonium is uh, nothing if not inspirational. That was many years ago for a start. If you look at like Machete and Sin City and so on, the image is a little bit less clear, I feel. You want to get a little bit angrier? Are we ramping up? Chris is going slightly green. Okay, okay. There's a little greenish tinge there around the edges. He is wearing, I can confirm, his Hulk purple jumper. Yes, you are. I am. But that's appropriate. And um, no pants. I just, I just wanted to let you know that. But speaking of the strongest one there is... <laughs> not true, I've, I've got pants. Warner Brothers has announced Godzilla versus mm. King Kong mm. for 2020. Legendary Pictures obviously mm. made the last one. They're also working to make Kong Skull Island, obviously, at the moment. But they now have a whole plan in place. Kong Skull Island will now be out on March 10th, 2017, a Godzilla sequel in June 2018, and Godzilla vs. Kong in 2020. This is one of those things. It's a bit like going over a waterfall, isn't it? You see the drop coming and yet you go towards it with a tedious and fatal inevitability. I think when they sort of announced Skull Island at Comic-Con that time at the legendary panel, you know, right after the Godzilla thing, we all saw this coming and yet we hoped beyond hope that perhaps it, you know, wouldn't. And here we are. (laughs) How big is King Kong in this version of events? That's an interesting question because he doesn't strike me as Godzilla-sized. No. He's usually about, what, 25, 30 feet. Yeah. He's a toothpick for Godzilla. Godzilla. Yeah. There's no verses there. Yeah, what can they do? Can they team up? Yeah, hey, cuddly little mite. He's basically a tick. You get these birds that land on rhinos' backs and they pick out all the ticks in between the scales of the rhino's armor. That's what King Kong is to Godzilla. You know, beat around the bush. He's 300 feet tall, can breathe fire and destroy a skyscraper with his tail. Oh, and he breathes fire when he remembers that he can breathe fire, which is always conveniently <laughs> at the end of a movie. But I don't know. <sighs> it's like a dinosaur versus a baby chimpanzee. It is. Uh, Godzilla's a giant fusion reactor the size of a skyscraper and King Kong hangs off the top of one. Unless King Kong becomes a hemorrhoid... Ew. And inserts himself. No, stop. Maybe. I'm spitballing here. It's going to be Army of Darkness. It'll be like Ash versus Mini Ash. Maybe, Maybe it'll be like Monty Python and King Kong will basically run around going, I'll bite your legs off. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Tis but a scratch. First five minutes of King Kong gets absolutely flattened and Godzilla has no idea he's done it. But, I mean, we're and, obviously being and, silly, but there's yeah. a serious point here yeah. in that there is a serious imbalance there. That, how does that work unless they... Well, it's not just that serious imbalance. One of the criticisms of Godzilla that came out a few years ago was that you could take the human characters out of the movie completely and it would affect the plot not one iota. Apart from that slight business towards the end with the nuclear bomb where Aaron Taylor-Johnson sells it off. Oh, spoilers. That's a worry here. So, for example, if Tom Hiddleston carries over from Skull Island to this, I'm just spitballing, or anyone carries over from Godzilla 2 to this, how do you make them matter Mm -hmm. in a plot like this? Where you already have a giant monkey that could squash you, then you have a giant lizard that could squash a giant monkey that could squash you. It's like, how do you make those characters have some sort of impact on the story? That worries me. But my anger isn't about that. My anger is about, and I've said this before in the podcast, that you're putting the cart before the horse here massively, to a massive extent. We haven't even seen Kong Skull Island. We haven't even seen Godzilla 2. And the first Godzilla film I don't think was that well liked. And it just about made enough money to garner a sequel. And so you're already saying that no matter what happens in 2020, we're going to have Kong versus Godzilla? Well, it's not no matter what happens, is it? Because we've seen a few times now that these plans do not necessarily pay off if the first film doesn't. But, you know, maybe you as film fans should just stop listening to these kind of announcements because they're for shareholders. These aren't for Mm. film fans, really. 
Yeah. So I maybe mean, it doesn't matter. I don't know. I think we can all lay the blame for this firmly at the feet of Kevin Feige. <laughs> because if he hadn't done such a good job with Marvel, people wouldn't feel the need to link up every single property that springs to mind. I mean, we're yeah. literally three months away from a Batman versus Superman versus Godzilla versus the Wolfman versus Dracula announcement. No, that, that, actually, that, that sounds good. Except, <laughs> except that a lot of people would still think that Batman would win. I mean, the, the number of people who genuinely believe... In a no-holds-barred fight that Batman would beat Superman. Yeah. This is a genuinely cherished belief for so many people. Batman they, versus Godzilla? Batman. Batman they, they genuinely Batman. would. It, this so, is thing, we discussed this the other day. that We won't discuss the context, but you had a conversation with someone, didn't you? Yes. At, which essentially ended in, if not physical conflict, almost tears. <laughs> because you said, obviously, Superman would win in a fight because he's a godlike alien and Batman is a rich dude with ears on his head. Yeah. Yeah. But no, they will not accept that. The point is We're gonna get letters. Who wins in a fight between Batman and Superman? (laughs) Who wins in a fight between Batman and Godzilla? Who wins in a fight between Batman and Dracula? The answer in all cases is the Hulk. (laughs) (laughs) I think we can all agree that and move on. But yeah, it's a very good point. It it may not happen. And of course, we don't want Godzilla 2 to be bad. We don't want Kong Skull Island to be bad. We want those films to be good so that in 2020, when King Kong versus Godzilla rolls around, we're actually looking forward to it. We're excited by the possibilities of it. But someone on my Twitter feed, a guy called Graham Patrick last night, who I think listens to the podcast, hello Graham, said, I'm sick of being told what I'm going to see in five years' time. And that is a byproduct of Marvel's success, Mm -hmm. absolutely. But I don't think they can be held responsible for other studios copying their model and not doing it as well. That's angry part one. So fingers crossed. <laughs> Let's move on to angry part two. So much angrier. And that involves a diehard origin story. So given that A Good mm. Day to Die Hard didn't do so terribly well, it did okay worldwide. The numbers are still there because everybody loves Die Hard. But it was pretty poorly ranked with critics and frankly it doesn't have a lot of love for the franchise now. So 20th Century Fox now I want to go in a new direction for the sixth instalment. They want to go prequel. They want to go young John McClane. They're looking for a writer right now to hash out the idea which would have Bruce Willis return as present day McClane in like a bookend story, Mm -hmm. but then take us back to the 1970s where he would be a New York beat cop. This is young Uh, John McClane. This is born hard. And this is, (laughs) we should mention this, is not even a rumour, this is something that's actually happening. Len Wiseman is going to direct it with Lorenzo de Bonaventura. He's going to produce it. They're going out to writers right now. And Len Wiseman today, just to confirm that we hadn't all dreamt it, (laughs) tweeted a picture of the logo, Die Hard Year One. That's what they're looking at, going to call it. See, now... You, you will know that I have a theology degree. And when I got up this morning, I checked because I wasn't entirely sure. And I looked at the book of Revelation. And it is, in fact, a passage <laughs> that Lowe and Len Wiseman came under 20th century Fox. Len Wiseman. Fox. Wiseman. Well, it's, it's biblical times. They pronounce things differently. <laughs> he came under 20th century Fox and did give birth to an abomination. And the number of the beast was 666. That's weird because I opened my Bible today. And there was a picture of the logo for Die Hard Year One. <laughs> <laughs> where, where that chapter was. I don't know. If, I think we may have peaked too much by comparing this to an episode of the book of Revelation. It's the end of days and it's actually going to be worse than end of days there are so many things wrong <laughs> james and i are probably the two biggest diehard fans in empire helen is a big diehard fan as well yep. james and i quote diehard to each other on a daily basis i don't even know where to begin with this story well do you know what we're going to discuss pan in a bit and i feel like it, it's going to link up to this because yeah. here's the thing not everything in the world needs an origin <clears throat> not no. everything in the world needs a backstory yeah Not everything in the world has to spring from some incident in your childhood. Maybe, much as I love Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, maybe this is all because of that fantastic train sequence where we see the origin of all of his stuff. (laughs) But people now, instead of doing a little train sequence as a joke at the beginning of the movie, they're now doing an entire movie, or my God, trilogy of that train sequence. And that seems a little it's unnecessary. It's not even that not everything needs an origin. It's almost certain that nothing needs an origin because demystification ruins fiction. I mean, I won't dredge up the Star Wars prequels, but what I'm saying is <laughs> to destroy Darth Vader, which is what those films essentially do, is a bad thing. John McClane is iconic to do this. You know, hey, Lynn Wiseman's made some good films, but have no illusions. This will be an absolute disaster. And also, frankly, it's completely missing the point. He's a regular guy. He's a standard cop. He was the wrong guy in the wrong place at the wrong time. Watching him dole out parking tickets is not really Except they won't do that. That's what a diehard prequel should be. It should be John McClane as a beat cop going around. Maybe the most he does is he busts a drug dealer. 
But they won't. You know they won't. You know he's going to get involved. There'll be some sort of terrorist incident that mysteriously wasn't mentioned in 1988 when he in the Nakatomi Plaza. The first time he meets Hans and his team in the Nakatomi Plaza is the first time he sees a terrorist. And the whole point of Die Hard, someone on my Twitter feed again today said, Die Hard is John McClane's origin story. Die Hard <laughs> is Die Hard year one. Why do we need to go back? What's he going to do? And he can't go rogue. He can't go maverick. Because back then, that wasn't him. He's a policeman. There are rules for policemen. Yeah. And he would behave perfectly normally. It's the worst thing in the world. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> if you were to go on the BBC right now, it will be the headline, The World is Ending, Die Hard Preach. We should write it off. No film. It could be brilliant. With the director of the fourth best Die Hard film at the helm, I'm sure it'll be in good hands. But Len Wiseman, when he tweeted that today, it was amazing. I watched the replies to his Die Hard Year One tweet, and I think there was maybe one person who thought it was a good idea. And it <laughs> Might have been his brother. Who knows? And maybe the level of negative reaction might make them think twice about this. Of course, the other problem is that Bruce Willis isn't getting any younger, and they need to start looking at rebooting because you know, it's got brand value Let's and honest, you can exploit John it for ages. Didn't work out. So it didn't work out. Weirdly enough, I'd be happier, Jimbo, if they just bit the bullet and remade Die Hard. Oh God! Honestly, I'd be okay with that. I okay is a strong word. No, I'd be still apocalyptically angry. <laughs> but at least there's a basis there. It'd be hard to fuck that up. Although, they'd give it a damn good go, I'm sure. But we'd always have the original. But by going back and somehow trying to change things and the amount of retconning that would go on and the amount of stupid little Easter eggs and little glib references, and oh, awful. Is, Die Hard is the perfect film. There is nothing about that film I would change. I love every single frame of it. It is the best action film ever made. It is the reason the 80s exist. It's just, <laughs> <laughs> I can't emphasise enough the brilliance of that film. So you're totally A-OK with the prequel, is what yes, you're saying. Okay. I'm, I'm, I've we're fully on board, and we're prepared to give everything a chance. Right, there we go. I think I was... We're right there. Yeah, he's did too well. bad. Blood pressure, all right. So it's time now for our guest this week. After the madness of the last few weeks, we had so many guests, we had to do two interviews a week and have specials galore. We've begun to settle down a bit. Time now to introduce a man who's been around since the late 80s when he exploded onto the scene as a teen idol in the likes of Pump Up the Volume and Heathers. He later went on to star in the likes of True Romance and, of course, who can forget Mindhunters. He's now starring in the acclaimed TV show Mr. Robot, which hits Amazon Prime this Friday. Ooh. He is, of course... The great Christian Slater, he came into London recently and talked to Phil about a great many things, which is my way of saying Phil went on holiday without leaving any notes about what they talked about, and I have no idea because I haven't heard the interview, but I hope it's good. Please enjoy. We are delighted. Christian Slater. Hello. Welcome to the Empire Podcast. Thank you so much. Um, It's very, very good to have you along to talk about the show, Mr. Robot, which is terrific. Oh, wow. It's unique. It is unique. Yeah, it has a unique quality to it. It also feels almost from the get-go, almost from the uh, pilot episode, that a show that's got legs. Hmm. Do you feel that? You never know. I mean, you always hope for the best. You know, you sign on to a show and, you know, meet with the team of people that are creating it. And, you know, so much of it comes down to the writer and how prepared he is and to continue to tell the story. And fortunately, in this situation, you know, Sam, uh, Sam Esmail, the, the creator, started out this project with the idea of making a movie. But you know, then he just started to write and write and write and write and write so much that it turned into like a 900-page script. And he thought, well, what can I do with this? And fortunately, there are all these platforms for him to be able to break up the story and, and tell it over a certain period of time. We should put it in a little bit of context for our listeners. Mm-hmm. It's already in season two in the U.S. So if you watch it and you enjoy it, right. it's going and there's going to be more and it's more. moving forward, yes. Um, yeah. You play Mr. Robot, who right. is a kind of, a little bit <clears throat> analogous to the Gene Hammond character in Enemy of the State. He is a mysterious, oh, yeah, sure. he's a great character, yeah, um, great character. mysterious kind of hacker behind mm. a, a sort of techno-anarchist group. Yeah. Yeah, and, a and group called F Society. F Society, yeah. and the F yeah. stands, of course, for right. the Fug Society, basically. And Rami Malek plays Feels Elliot, good. who is a tech guy, basically. Right. It feels like there's sort of echoes of the Matrix in, in his Neo-like mm. journey into this world with you as Morpheus. Yes, no, uh, there is certainly all of that. I picked up on that, too, when I read the pilot. And I, I certainly love those movies. I know Sam loves those movies. And he's a movie aficionado and I think has collected data and picked up different ways of telling the story. I mean, this is also a rock. Robin Hood-esque type of story. You know, as a creative guy, he's sort of borrowed and taken and used what he could do and uh, the the inspiration that he's gotten from things that he's seen, of course. Much like Rami Elliott's character in the show. I mean, there's definitely some specific moments where he makes references to movies and television shows and things that have inspired him as well. 
the Hunger Games gets a bit of a kicking. Yeah, the Hunger Games. The movie Hackers gets brought up a couple times. Pulp Fiction comes in. Ah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I don't know how many episodes you've seen. I've seen a couple. Okay, you've seen, seen a couple. couple. Yeah, yeah. So it's an interesting journey that Elliot Alderson goes on. It does have those reference points, but it does have to stress feel very fresh. And it has sure. a, a different aesthetic from a right, lot of right. TV shows. And... <clears throat> One thing that, that struck me is it's an invidious term, really, but zeitgeist. It does feel like it's tapping into something. And what does that term mean to you about in terms of something that's sort of current? There's a lot of anger about. Well, because- when we made the pilot, a lot of things hadn't happened yet, you know, that it sort of brought the subject of hacking to the forefront and to everybody's level of awareness. A lot of those things hadn't happened yet, like the Sony hack. And I signed on to this just sort of thinking, well, this is a unique take on this particular world. I sat down with Sam and like I said, he had mapped things out so well and I had questions and you know he gave me better answers than I had anticipated or expected and even went deeper into where the story was going to go. And that's when I really started to get very excited about it. And then, you know, we made the pilot, the Sony hack happened. This became a very relevant subject. And then the president's talking about it in the state of the union address and the China hack happens and government employees, fingerprints are being stolen. And, you know, the scary thing is it was great on the one hand for the show, but it's kind of scary to be living in a world where that is all actually happening and is possible. It is a bit scary. It is very Uh, scary. The show sort of concludes that there's no such thing as privacy. No, exactly. Yeah, our Uh, privacy has been robbed. Absolutely. But you're on Twitter, so you're embracing... All of this stuff, social media has become a force of nature you know it has just continued to grow and you know it gets bigger and bigger every day and facebook gets bigger and bigger every day and a lot of decisions are made on how many followers you have you know a lot of people are choosing actors who they want to work with based on because if you have five to six million followers i guess you know that's helpful in selling tickets and making right? money it's part of I think what's happening with the industry, I mean, it's become that powerful of a force and it's either you, you know, you can't beat it, so you sort of join it. What happens if you have kind of imitation accounts, fan accounts? Does that come uh, towards your... Well, you can... Towards uh, your market cap? No, I don't think so. I guess there's people you can hire that can delete those accounts and get those people that are following those false accounts moved into your actual <laughs> account. That's how it works. Okay, fair enough. So it seems like a show that's going to go and go. Say so Rami Malik was saying that you were kind of, this is nice. This is how it feels when something works. hits, something works, yes. and you can appreciate it. Of course. Yeah, no, look, after having experiences where you, know, you hope for the best, you know, things don't necessarily go the way you would ideally like them to go, it's always nice when people respond to something and appreciate it, and it's a great feeling. And when the pilot premiered and when they picked up the second season before the pilot even aired, it was phenomenal, you know? I mean, yeah. that just doesn't happen. And, and the fact that USA has been so supportive and really behind the show, I mean, these are all the elements that have to come together together in order for something to work you know yeah. like something happens in the universe and a creator like sam esmail has to come along who is somebody who does tend to think out of the box and not put things in their safe cookie cutter sort of format that's what people i think tend to respond to absolutely can we go back to where it began really i mean because you started acting well, when you were eight. yeah when i was eight or nine something like that yeah i mean I, I grew up in new york and was doing theater and got discovered there and for me it was all like fun and games really and sort of a way to get out of school which wasn't necessarily my favorite thing to do it just (laughs) wasn't nothing really interested me in school and I loved being in the world of the theater when I was five years old my father he was an actor and I used to go with him you know clinging to his leg begging him to take me backstage and it was an interesting experience to sit there and see him up on the stage and hear the audience laughing and reacting to what he was saying and thinking, wow, this is something that I would really enjoy. I've been doing it so long that there have been moments where I've been excited, I've been disillusioned, I've been disappointed, I've been elated. (laughs) So I've run the whole gambit, really went through a process of, I think, rediscovery of what it is that I do love about this business. I mean, I do love to work, number one, and I love to immerse myself in another character and just put myself in the shoes of that person as much as I possibly can and inhabit the role and show up and be prepared and hit my mark and do the best I can. It seems like looking back on your career that the pump up the volume is the film is that fair or well it's definitely my favorite i think just on every level i mean that was again just a situation that came together very surprisingly even for like the producers they said that was like the easiest movie they've ever had to put together it just everything fell into place in a way and again the writer was great and 
It really had a great story. And, you know, the nice thing about that movie is, in a large way, it was pretty much ahead of its time. I mean, it kind of was like the first podcast. I was going to say, yeah. A guy sitting (laughs) in his basement, you know, with a ham radio talking to nobody, he thought. But, you Mm -hmm. know, people started to tune in and listen. I had a guy come up to me recently at a party and just talking to me about that movie and the effect that it had on him and his life. You know, he was gay and in high school at the time and dealing with a lot of the struggles and issues that were broached in that movie. And what I liked about the hard hairy character is that, you know, there was no stereotypical judgment from my character against what he wanted to do. It was more judgment of the people who were judging him for him being who he was and how difficult that was and just how frustrating that is to be in a society where people are made to feel uncomfortable for being who they are. True Romance is kind of the beginning of Tarantino. Well, yeah, I mean, I think it was the first script that he'd written, really. I mean, he made Reservoir Dogs first, but True Romance was the script that was in his nightstand table that I don't know if Tony Scott pulled it out or how he got into his bedroom. I have no idea. Got a hold of that script and wanted to make it. Heck of a movie, a great script. Is it yes. true that, that you and Tony took a little bit of time to kind of come together in accordance about what the character of Clarence and that he gave you a copy of Taxi Driver to watch? No, no, didn't give me a copy of Taxi Driver. There was no real, from what I recall, conflict or anything like that. No, we saw eye to eye and I loved him. I mean, he was just great and definitely a character all unto himself. Wonderful energy and phenomenal director and somebody that I miss greatly and I always thought of him as a friend and, yeah. and certainly somebody I would have loved to have worked with again. It was just an amazing cast. Yeah, it was. Did you phenomenal. Did, you must have been chuffed to see Patricia Arquette picking up the uh, oh, the Oscar. Yeah, it was amazing. And then the speech that she made and talking about equal pay for women and all valuable, vital subjects. Glad that she used the opportunity to talk about something that's unfair and should be dealt with. Were you on set for the Sicilian scene? No, actually, but that it was one of the first scenes that Tony actually shot for the movie and had spent so much time like putting it together. And, and I remember we were in Detroit. I was shooting a scene with Dennis Hopper and, you know, Tony had like a VHS copy of that scene and I think brought Patricia and I into the Winnebago to watch it and just said you know you got to see this you got to see this man it's great it's great it's great you love it and uh, we sat there and watched it and truly were blown away i mean christopher walken and dennis hopper were phenomenal do you go back and look at some of those old movies are you no. someone that, how do you feel about watching yourself on no, screen no 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 i tend not to look backwards i tend to try and move forward as much as possible yeah. and if i do look back it's you know briefly maybe with a glimpse and <laughs> i don't know i just keep moving forward there's a discussion point we had on a podcast recently about the, the era when you had Songs, we call them pop busters. Okay. Songs that were attached to the movie. Yeah. In the yeah. case of uh, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, Bri- Brian Adams. Brian Adams, yeah, sure. Um, and then you had one in Young Guns, which is Bon oh, Jovi. Yes. So there were summers when, I guess, Christian, you would have been ubiquitous on big and small screens when they yeah. put those videos on VH1. Right. The first movie I did, The Legend of Billie Jean, Pat Benatar had a great song, uh, Invincible, I think it's called. Yeah. Great song, Legend of Billie Jean. And I remember we were definitely one of like the first music videos made at the time I remember being 15 years old and MTV just really getting started and it's so crazy and that video coming on and just being so excited that I was actually in a music video I couldn't believe it it's pretty cool yeah it was crazy did you call your mates up and say you've got to watch I'm on TV I've always been too shy to do that if I had mates over I might have like MTV on just by chance in the background just in case (laughs) and maybe while we're playing with our G.I. Joes it might come on Uh, how do you feel about everything I do I do for you the Brian Adams song yeah it was number Uh, one in the charts here for about six and a half years no it's great I mean that's I love Brian Adams and that song was incredible another fun video great experience and look I I hear that song from time to time while I'm driving or in a mall Mm -hmm. or something and it always makes me smile brings back some memories yes 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 it's very good it looked like it was a fun set to be on it was it was incredible we were actually shooting in Sherwood Forest and driving back and forth to London every night and it was a phenomenal experience for a 16 17 year old kid I think I was or maybe I was 20 then I'm, I'm not exactly sure but it was amazing did you manage to pick up an Alan Rickman impression along the way 
Oh, or indeed, God, the Sean I, Connery impression. I wish I did. In the name of the rose. You know, Sean, he was like, just remember to breathe, boy. You know, that was it. That was the one bit of advice I got from him. I don't know. That was a horrible imitation, but the best I could do. That was not bad. That Thank was not bad. Thank you. Was it a bit intimidating to work with Sean, who was... It was, a little bit. He was renowned for being a little gruff at times, I think. He could be tough with the crew at times if he didn't like how they were treating, like, the animals on the set or something like that. He would definitely take a stand. He's just... There's no question that Sean Connery is and always will be the best and just the biggest badass around. Every time I've seen him, he's always been amazing. And working with him couldn't have been a better foundation for me as like a young actor just to see such a phenomenal example of dignity and grace and professionalism on and off set. Yeah. You've had some great cameos down mm. the years as well. Okay. As Christian Slater. You, I yeah. have to say, you make an absolutely terrific Christian Slater. Thank you. One I particularly love is Kirby Enthusiasm. Okay. The battle over the caviar. Yeah, that was amazing. You know, I'm a huge fan of that show and Larry David and I bumped into each other and I told him I was a huge fan of the show and, you know, maybe a year later I got a phone call from him and it's just, he said, hey, you want to come and do this? And I said, sure, you know, I hate caviar, but I'll do it. So that's how it happened. Were you actually eating the caviar in the scene? Do you suffer for the art? You think I would? I can't remember what they replaced it with but it looked enough like caviar like polenta <laughs> or something some little grainy thing it was good but ended up giving me dry mouth and entourage i think some people wanted to know what yeah. your grievance with johnny drama was because yeah you, you have one line and i it's, know it's f society isn't it yeah pretty much it really is yeah that came together because i was shooting another one of these shows on the lot there and they were shooting their show they hadn't really thought about what they wanted to do but threw me in there because i guess i just happened to be walking by yeah i don't know if there'll be a sequel to the entourage movie but that is a question that could someday need to be answered i don't know zoolander 2 cameo oh i don't know yeah who knows we'll see what happens there but well, i guess they filmed that yeah there might so be, no. there might be i would three. know wouldn't i <laughs> yeah 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 i would know unless you've been hypnotized no absolutely not Austin Powell yeah, style. that's right i could have been drugged and kidnapped yes. christian slater thank you so much for You're joining us the podcast. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> thank you all right mate thank you we had happy harry hard on on the podcast that's very exciting. We did. Hard Harry. Pump up the volume. You're looking at me incredibly blankly at this point. No, I remember pump up the volume. Good, good. Yeah, well, I mentioned it in the intro, but I just know, when yeah. you say the word hard on, it fills me with an existential dread. Fair enough. Okay, so what should you spend your hard-earned cash on at the multiplex this week? It's a lot of choice out there. We don't have a lot of time. Let's start with Guillermo del Toro's Crimson Peak. Yes, this is Guillermo completely indulging his love of kind of gothic horror. Mia Vaskowska is his leading lady. She is Edith Cushing. No prizes for spotting the reference in her surname. And she is a plucky young would-be writer based in Buffalo, New York. All is well in her life. And one day she meets a tall, dark and handsome stranger who is Sir Thomas Sharp, who is also Tom Hiddleston. He's come looking for money. He and his sister, who's played by Jessica Chastain, are trying to restore their family fortunes with the help of a new mining machine. And he's looking for investors in his grand plan. Edith's rich father says no he doesn't trust this moneyed aristocrat, turns him down flat and also orders him basically out of town. But he and Edith have already sparked a connection and she ends up marrying him. Well, no prizes for guessing that that's maybe not the best idea she ever had. So they go back to the ancestral home in England and it turns out to be the creepiest place <laughs> in the world ever. The family fortune you see rests on this bright red clay and this bright red clay it's apparently wonderful for building but what it does is it seeps up through the floor like blood. It drips down the walls like blood and it looks incredibly creepy all of the time. Yeah. And then things start to get really worrying. There are ghosts, there are possibly psychos, there's all sorts of things going bump in the night and all of it surrounded by enormously gothic design. This is an interesting one because mm. we've been so inundated with sort of low budget sort of Bloomhouse horror films that it feels rather decadent to have a incredibly just sort of sumptuous, gorgeous looking, beautiful, you know, Hollywood A-list, massive budget horror film, except it's not really a horror film. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, Guillermo said this, he's basically called it a mystery, hasn't he, really? It's a um, gothic romance, yeah. it's yeah. a mystery with supernatural overtones there's a line in the film about it's not a ghost story it's a story with ghosts in it indeed and that's what this is and i think that line i think really kind of sums up my slight problem with the film is that I found that it was a mystery without a compelling mystery because he does a lot of telegraphing but the telegraphing is so obvious there's a house that bleeds do you know what I mean you can see what's coming at every point you know there's there's nice little nods a few lines here and there which resonate later in the story but I think you know things like Jessica Chastain's character who is so unbelievably malevolent do you know what I mean it's like it's like, do you think maybe she's she's not a 
good guy? <laughs> I don't know. I'm getting strange vibes from her. Perhaps it's the way she's staring daggers at everyone and threatening to kill them. So that was a slightly odd one. But generally speaking, I enjoyed watching it. It's, mm. I would say, the most beautiful film of the year, definitely. If it doesn't win some kind of production Oscar, I'm going to eat something. Mm. Yeah, um, it is gorgeous. It's looking. amazing looking. It also has the most enormous sleeves you will ever <laughs> see in your life, which I think merits some mention. And Chastain looks absolutely incredible. I mean, yes, okay, sure, mega evil, but also like <laughs> mega, mega hot. She looks absolutely fantastic. Hiddleston we haven't talked about, but like if you're uh-huh. looking for somebody to play a Byronic sort of hero slash anti-hero slash we don't quite know, he's got to be your guy. Absolutely. He's very good and he's very, very dashing. We should mention he gets his hiddle buns out. He does. Uh, he does, yeah. yeah. There's hiddle buns all over the place. Absol- well, not all over the place. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're firmly attached to the back of him. <laughs> he's not flashing him in every single scene, but they are there. They are there. They are there. I really like this. I mean, obviously, I should declare an interest. I was on set. I'm not outrageously biased because I think Guillermo's fantastic. I thought this was great. Mm. It's not a horror film. And I think it's been mis... Well, it hasn't been missold. It's been sold as a horror film, obviously, because you've got to put bums in seats. But a lot of people hiddle bums in seats. And a lot of people are going to get into the film. And it's not the out-and-out shock fest. But there are ghosts in it. They are scary. But a common thread that runs throughout Guillermo's films, the ghosts aren't scary. It's the people yes. who are scary. Yeah, yeah, and that is very much the case here as well. Lots of his familiar kind of tropes are there. People meddling with clockwork is usually a bad sign, mm-hmm. for example. There are a lot of those kind of familiar kind of elements. But he's never really indulged himself, I think, to this extent. And I'm mm. not saying that as a bad thing. It's, it's very much a good thing. Here. Oh, absolutely. It's um, the most Guillermo del Toro film ever it, made. It really, <laughs> really is. And I thought it was interesting. It felt very stilted and very sort of artificial at the beginning to me. Like the language and some of the lines were a little bit sort of mannered. I mean, I think deliberately so. They were yeah. meant to be sort of 19th century sounding. Stick with that because once you kind of get used to it after a few minutes, it does flow a lot more elegantly and it does feel like it fits the film and fits yeah. the mood. I think it's a beautifully painted canvas. I just don't think the story's perhaps as deftly told as I would have liked. I think if you'd sort of kept a lot of those reveals until sort of the third act, kept it until they'd actually got to where they were going, that would have made it sit better for me. Also, frankly, I've been to the north of England and it looks nothing like that. <laughs> I have a very, very rosy view of what Cumbria looks like. If you think that's a rosy view of what Cumbria looks like, <laughs> it, it looks like it's a bleak, did bleed. It's literally it's a bleak, rosy. desolate wasteland. Yeah. It doesn't come off well. Yeah, I will say very, very quickly, it looks beautiful. It sounds beautiful. It's very, very well acted. And it's a glorious fusion of so many influences. There's, there's lots of gothic overtones. It's a gothic romance, as Guillermo has said. There's Hammer in there. There's some great, you know, Dario Argento, Lamberto Bava references, all sorts of stuff going on. It's a feast for the eyes. So if you're going to go see it, why don't you bring your eyes with you? And we gave this four stars. Dan Jolin gave this four stars. So that's Crimson Peak. Next up, we have Joe Wright's Pan, which is an origin tale of Peter Pan. Yeah, it's the origin tale that literally nobody asked for. That said, it's not completely terrible. So Again, the tagline. <laughs> Peter Pan is an orphan in London in the Blitz in World War II. You may be surprised by that, given that he meets the darling kids in sort of 30 years before that. But let's not worry about that and assume that time flows differently in Neverland, namely backwards. Anyway, Pan is a boy with a destiny. It turns out that there is some funny business in his background that makes him the chosen one. The Victorian count is way off his the charts. Florian Kant is totally stellar. He and his orphanage friends, who are ruled, by the way, by evil nuns, which is hilarious. Played by the great Kathy Burke. Indeed. Mm. Get abducted by bungee jumping pirates from Blackbeard's pirate ship. Uh-huh. Get taken to Neverland where Blackbeard is the big bad. Mm-hmm. He oversees hundreds and thousands of Nirvana singing pirate mm. miners mm. who are looking for lumps of fairy dust to keep their ships flying and to yes. keep Blackbeard himself young uh-huh. even though Blackbeard also has a little bit of a death wish he's kind of torn between wanting to live forever and wanting to be killed immediately he seems mm. a little bit conflicted it's mm. an interesting performance by Hugh Jackman there in the mines Pan young Levi Miller meets young Garrett Headland, who is the young James Hook they try to escape they meet Tiger Lily who's from a native tribe that definitely has nothing to do with any specific culture in earth at all yep. it's like there was an explosion in a circus that was also an anthropology shop. There's a lot of ribbons and pom-poms and not a lot of specific culture from anywhere. So don't worry about that, everybody. That's Which is how fine. they can get away with... Which is how they a... can get away with all of this stuff. Yeah. And then they go on an adventure for... I mean, reasons to help the fairies of Neverland who have temporarily disappeared. This is basically Bucks Fizz is a land of make-believe, but in in song form. It is absolutely demented. And like, it's also way too long for me. But 
every time I thought I'm completely lost, I am out of here mentally, obviously yeah. not physically, I wasn't going to leave the cinema, something gorgeous would happen. This is an absolutely beautiful film. You just said Crimson Peak is the most gorgeous film of the year and that's probably true overall. But Pan has moments of just surpassing beauty. I... They find a new and interesting way to do mermaids. Who would have thought that there was still a new and interesting way to do mermaids? These flying galleons are gorgeous. The village is gorgeous. It's mm-hmm. demented, but it's mm-hmm. gorgeous. So I was able to cut it a little bit of slack in the end. Uh, yeah, uh, I know what you mean. It's all <laughs> incidental detail for me. Yeah. The incidental details in this movie are great. So the mermaids are great. And there's a sequence later on when people get killed, they explode into puffs of colourful dust, which is... It's I've basically a holy festival. Yeah, it's Yeah, great. and that's really interesting. However, I found most of what goes around that to be quite bad. Yeah. Having said that, to have a film and a filmmaker who swings for the fences and misses is a great thing and should be encouraged and Joe Wright has really gone for it here and introducing your bad guy, Blackbeard played by Hugh Jackman, singing a Nirvana song in some sort of weird timeless landscape that is obviously clearly a, a big green screen. That's interesting to me and the first 10-15 minutes are really good. Actually when it gets to Neverland it goes off the rails a little bit for me. You know, it's still got enough to enjoy I would say, which is why we gave it three stars. It's a recommendation. But it's already not done that well at the box office. It's probably one of the most shameless setups that I've seen for a long, long time and I'm not sure we're going to get it to see a pan too. Incidentally, very, very quickly there's been a different version of this story every 12 years for the last few years. The Peter Pan, 2003, 12 yeah. years before this, before that, Hook was in 1991, 12 years before that. That, so that was my back. first premiere for Empire. The, really? The 12 years ago Every one. Holy cow. Yeah. It's the book of Revelation again. It is. Holy cow. Very, very quickly, Helen, talk about the programme. The programme, this is the Lance Armstrong drama. So we've had the documentary on it last year. This is the Stephen Frears film starring Ben Foster as the disgraced cyclist himself. It's a bit of a whistle-stop tour through his career, both before he got cancer, after he came back. Basically using drugs throughout. I thought it was much, much better than the documentary of the same subject because I think there Gibney got a little bit too close to his subject. This one has a little bit more distance. It focuses a bit more on Sunday Times journalist David Walsh, who was the first one to obviously ring the bell and say, hey, this dude is cheating. Good performances all around, but especially, I think, from Ben Foster, who is absolutely monstrous as Lance Armstrong in the very charismatic way that we see him. And also not in a sort of completely two-dimensional way. You do see the really good work he did with Liv Strong and so on as well. So yeah, we give that four stars. Does it include his dodgeball cameo? It does not, sadly. And that is the wow. big and the most awful outcome of it the is. whole mess, is it's that he ruined his own cameo. <laughs> he really did. Never mind everything else. So there we go, the programme, and we gave that... Four stars. Four stars. Four stars for the latest Stephen Frears film. Go check that one out if you would like. But I'm just going to very, very quickly talk about Super Bob, which uh, Helen and James haven't seen. Super Bob is a low-budget British comedy about a British superhero. Stop, come back. It's much, much better than it sounds. Believe me, I had exactly the same reaction when I first heard about it. But this is a very, very funny, very sweet, very charming film that deserves your support. It stars and is co-written by Brett Gold who's a British stand-up who plays Bob Kenner who is a Peckham postman who gets struck by meteorite is imbued with Superman-like superpowers becomes the world's only superhero he works for the Ministry of Defence and this film rather than going down the tacky parody route or going down the obvious joke route follows him on his day off as he prepares for a date he hasn't had a date in years he's quite shy and diverted and nervous there's a lot of great jokes there's a very caustic undertone which cuts through some of the more sentimental moments but for me this is a really funny film and it has a real heart to it as well there's a gorgeous sequence towards the end and it really does deserve your attention if you can find it in cinemas this weekend but who would win in a fight between him and Batman the Hulk we've established this James we've established this four stars for Super Bob and that's it for this week's Empire Podcast sponsored by Go Think Big which helps you achieve your dream career through exciting work experience opportunities valuable career advice and exclusive tips find out more again by heading over to gothinkbig.co.uk next week Join us for more formulated fun. We will be joined by Carrie Fukunaga, the director of the forthcoming Netflix movie Beasts of No Nation. Until then, it's goodbye from Helen. Toodaloo. It's goodbye from Jimbo. The end is nigh. And it's goodbye from me. I'm off to write my pitch for Die Hard 6 in which everyone just forgets about Die Hard 6, goes home, has a nice cup of tea and gets on with their lives. See you next week.